Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Shortly after he took office in January 2017, President Donald Trump accused the press of being an enemy of the American people. A headline from the ACLU stated, Donald Trump thinks the freedom of the press is disgusting. As its title, Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis suggests, John Marshall's latest book examines how that has often been a contentious relationship throughout American history. It's published by Potomac Books and brings John Marshall, an associate professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing and Communications, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. It's great to be with you today. In August 2018, the U.S. Senate, with a Republican majority, uh, passed by unanimous consent a resolution that attested to, quote, the vital and indispensable role the free press serves. What led them to take that action? And do you think that would happen today? Oh, I think a, a resolution in the Senate for a free press would actually probably, uh, maybe for the first time, uh, get some opposition <laughs> because we've had a uh, president and Donald Trump and, and his supporters in, in Congress and in the media who have been vilifying uh, the free press. And what's what's really different now is that all all presidents in the past, even though they complained and grumbled about about journalists, sometimes tried to restrict and manipulate them, uh, they all paid lip service, at least to the idea of the First Amendment and a free press. And, and we certainly didn't get that with Donald Trump. Well, they've been ambivalent in some cases. Thomas Jefferson once said, quote, were it left to me to decide whether we should have government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate to prefer the latter. But then in 1814, five years after he'd left the White House, he complained to a fellow politician of the, quote, putrid state of newspapers and the vulgarity and mendacious spirit of those who write for them. So what led to his change of heart? Uh, for Thomas Jefferson, well, yeah. I think once uh, once he was no longer uh, in in the opposition, uh, where he he and uh, James Madison and others in the in what was to become the Democratic Party were were happily using the press to to vilify John Adams. Uh, once he became president, and uh, the press, uh, particularly those who are still loyal to the Federalist, uh, were uh, going after him. Uh, he certainly. Uh, wasn't as happy about the notion of of a free press, but but you know there's still I think a big contrast between Thomas Jefferson and Donald Trump in terms of their their attitudes uh, towards the First Amendment. Well, you mentioned John Adams; he tried to silence journalists with the Sedition Act of 1798. What did that say? Uh, that's right. Uh, so Adams was a, a, a frequent. Uh, target of, of, of the opposition press in those days. Uh, For what reason? They definitely, said, they definitely said some nasty mm -hmm. things about him. Uh, and, 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 and the First Amendment and, and the notion of a free press was, mm -hmm. was new in those days. And they're still kind of trying to work out what it means. Uh, so his, his Federalist allies in Congress in 1798, as you said, passed the Sedition Act. Um, Adams signed it, and it basically made it uh, illegal to, as they said, utter uh, or write uh, anything that was disparaging of, of the government uh, or the president. In uh, fact, it, it, it permitted the deportation, fine, or imprisonment of anyone uh, deemed a threat uh, for, for publishing false, scandalous, or malicious writing against the government. Right. 
Right. And the Federalists um, at the federal level, as well as their, their allies in the states, uh, used the Sedition Act uh, more than 100 times uh, to prosecute uh, opposition journalists and other people who people who are speaking out against the government. Uh, it, many of them ended up in jail. Uh, many of them had to shut down their newspapers as a result of the Sedition Act. Well, but uh, was it ultimately successful for John Adams? Uh, no, it actually it actually boomeranged on him uh, in, in in a strong way. Uh, the, the Sedition Act, along with the the Alien Acts that were passed along with it, proved wildly uh, unpopular. And even though some uh, newspaper editors were ending up in jail and some newspapers closed down uh, in the two or so years that the Sedition Act was in effect, uh, there actually were. More opposition newspapers uh, formed than were, were closed down because the uh, the growing uh, Democratic Republican Party at that time uh, was so furious about it uh, that uh, more people uh, stepped up and, and started their own small newspapers. And the act was so unpopular that, as you know, as, as you know, uh, Adams ended up losing the race to Thomas Jefferson in 1800, and, and many scholars believe that the Sedition Act played a role in Adams's unpopularity in that race. John F. Kennedy, our 35th president, gave an address to the American Newspaper Publishers Association in 1961, in which he stated, and I'm quoting, no president should fear public scrutiny of his program. From that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I'm not asking your newspapers to support the administration, but I'm asking for help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people, for I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. Well, that sounds reasonable, but maybe that's why you didn't include President Kennedy and his relationship with the press in the book. Yeah, I featured um, 10 presidents and, and JFK wasn't one of them. Uh, if I wrote a book that was twice as long as, as, what, as what it was, I might have included Kennedy. Uh, but well, you could have, have included that. more than those 10, but those 10 Absolutely. really are, had egregious experiences with the press. Yeah, but, but, but Kennedy on the whole, uh, it, it, during his short presidency, uh, tended to have pretty warm relationships uh, with individual reporters. Uh, and, you know, even though he, like all presidents, uh, was, was scrutinized and, 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 and criticized by uh, the newspapers and TV stations, uh, there wasn't the, the same level of contentiousness as we see now. So the, the 10 you include are John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. And uh, as we said, it's probably safe to say that all 45 of our presidents have had some run-ins with the press. Uh, but uh, were these the ones with the most relevant clashes? I think they're the ones who tell us the most in their relationship with the press about how we got to our current state of uh, deep tension and, and uh, uh, often dysfunction with, uh, within the relationship. Uh, either uh, these presidents, either in how they use technology, uh, how they the, the kind of communication strategy uh, that they had, uh, the kind of level of partisanship that was going on uh, during their presidencies, uh, and uh, the, the nature of the, of the different crises that they faced. Well, the technology uh, for much of uh, the 18th century was uh, 
into the 19th century was rather primitive. It, it did keep on improving, and by the time uh, Abraham Lincoln came along, uh, the press was a little different. Uh, the Abraham Lincoln you write about in this book had a long and varied relationship with the press, not always as admirable as his being called the great emancipator would suggest. Uh, he was also seen as too cautious and conservative. Would you? Would a better description be the reluctant emancipator? <laughs> yeah, I, I like. Yeah, I like. I think the reluctant. Uh, uh, although at the end, he certainly he, he wasn't reluctant. But, but he, he finally got. Him, yeah, he finally. Yeah, it got definitely took him too took long. long uh, you know, and I, I think one of the things you know that does make Lincoln great was, was his willingness to, to change and evolve and uh, listen to others and, and, and uh, you know, eventually came out in, 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 a, in a good place in, in terms of emancipation. But he certainly, uh, with the abolitionist press uh, that, that was pushing against uh, the, the horrors of slavery, uh, he, um, like most white Americans at the time, uh, through you know the 1840s and, and, and 50s, really didn't take them seriously. Uh, thought they were too radical. Uh, thought they would destroy the country. Uh, but within uh, once the conflict of the Civil War started, uh, I think Lincoln began to recognize that uh, emancipation could be important in terms of both both on the battlefield and in terms of uh, helping him win the election of, of 1864. But even then, emancipation was limited to the Confederate states. Uh, right. The states that stayed with the Union uh, still maintained slavery. In 1864, Harper's listed some of the names the press was calling Lincoln. Filthy storyteller, despot, liar, thief, braggart, buffoon, monster, ignoramus, scoundrel, perjurer, <laughs> robber, swindler, tyrant, fiend, butcher, ape, Demon, beast, baboon, gorilla, imbecile. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he really, uh, you know, took it on the chin in terms of, you know, what particularly what the Democratic press was saying about him, and even sometimes the uh, the Republicans in his own party. Uh, but again, at the same time, Lincoln didn't take it uh, personally and 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 lash out uh, in the same way, except when it came. Uh, uh, with the Civil War, he did allow his military uh, to shut down some newspapers and, and, and censor newspapers. And they uh, confiscated printing presses, right? prevented some newspapers from being mailed, took control of telegraph wires to censor information, and, uh, as you, and, and allowed the military to arrest some reporters and prevent others from covering battles, you point out. Absolutely. That, that's pretty extreme. It was, uh, definitely. Uh, and... You know, Leonard, for you and I, we can we can sit back here and say that was absolutely wrong to do that uh, because of the importance of the First Amendment and the free press. And and I do think it was wrong. But again, we were not trying to lead a nation uh, in the middle of a terrible and, and bloody civil war. Uh, so I would like to think that Lincoln shouldn't have done that. Uh, but it's also hard to blame him uh, when you know, tens of thousands of, of young young men are are dying on the battlefields and, and you know civilians are, are being killed as well uh, that he, he took some desperate measures did uh, the First Amendment come up as an issue when presidents were doing these sorts of things was it cited because uh, it's the First, First Amendment <laughs> right um, it was not uh, to a large degree uh really um tested uh 
in, in the courts until really Woodrow Wilson's presidency, uh, when again in, in a time of war, World War One, uh, his his postmaster general was 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 shutting down uh, the mailing privileges for newspapers and uh, news uh, newspaper editors were being uh, jailed for sedition uh, under a new sedition act uh, as well as an espionage act and trading with the enemies act and uh so there was a great deal of repression and censorship against the press then and that's when uh some of the cases started to go uh to, to the supreme court which which originally uh was generally uh you know saying that uh in time of war time of crisis this this sort of thing is okay but uh Justices Brandeis and Holmes uh, authored a, a famous dissent that actually began to become, uh, in later years, the precedent uh, in, in terms of supporting a free press. So he was uh, trying to limit the pre- freedom of the press to prevent messaging that opposed sending troops overseas. This is all about right. World War One, But he also initiated press conferences in the White House in 1913. Uh, that was a bit open. What, what led him to do that? Yeah, Wilson came into office with sort of grand ideas about uh, how things should be administered. Uh, he'd been a, a professor of uh, political science at, at, at Princeton and then later the president of Princeton. And he thought he had the, you know, the right ideas and the right theories. Uh, and part of that was using the press um, effectively in terms of communicating his policies. The uh, problem was Wilson didn't really have the personality uh, to go along with that. So he indeed was the first president to hold any kind of formal press conferences. Uh, but all the report, not all the reporters, but most of the reporters who went there found them to be really kind of dreadful affairs uh, because Wilson would would lecture them as if they were his students uh, at, at Princeton and didn't really appreciate them asking questions and really thought they should just be stenographers for his policies, which he believed were obviously absolutely right. Uh, and he any thought kind they were of right. challenge to it. Oh, Wilson thought, yeah, yeah, Wilson thought they were. I mean, he, was, uh, he was segregating Washington at the time. So um, there must have been some people who thought that was a big mistake. Well, for that uh, as well, you know, the black press certainly went after uh, Wilson, although they were not allowed into the press conferences in those days. Uh, Then other other journalists uh, didn't like Wilson's uh, or challenged Wilson on on some of his uh, you know, progressive policies, uh, you know, labor laws, and so forth. Uh, so he he had plenty of you know domestic uh, uh, initiatives that that weren't uh, always 100 percent popular. Uh, so uh, those would be challenged in the press. Uh, and then once uh, the war started, that's when the real clampdown began. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is John Marshall, J-O-N Marshall. Uh, His latest book, Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis, is published by Potomac Books. So um, he instituted press conferences. How have press conferences been regarded by the presidents that have followed him? They, they've gone up and down in terms of uh, how presidents have used them uh, and how presidents uh, thought about them. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was probably one of the best and in, in, uh, added and, and held weekly, if not more than weekly, uh, press conferences, uh, meet with, would meet with reporters and uh, banter with them and uh, 
answer questions and give them story ideas. And he had this sort of personality that uh, reporters enjoyed. He had you no know, sense of humor uh, and a lot of, lot of information that he would share. Uh, so Roosevelt was, was one of the most effective and was one of the ones who held them most frequently. Uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower was actually pretty good at, at it as well. Um, John F. Kennedy, we've already talked mm -hmm. about. Uh, starting with Richard Nixon, uh, we began to have some presidents who were, who were less fond of press conferences. Uh, and from Nixon onward, the, the general trend has been to hold uh, fewer press conferences and, and to be less forthcoming during those press conferences. One of the ones who in that period who held the most was was the first George Bush, George H.W. Bush, uh, held more than the ones before Reagan before him and, and more than the, the presidents after him. But since H.W. Bush, the, the, the trend in terms of number of press conferences has generally been downward. And uh, it's given the press an opportunity to go after presidents, uh, to thinking of, of Trump and uh, Joe Biden, uh, Political, depending on the politics of the uh, the medium, uh, they may, they've ridiculed these presidents for what they've done during the press conferences. The um, there's certainly, I think, willingness uh, to uh, challenge presidents. Uh, and not just accept them at their word. No, but they make fun uh, of Bo Biden for his, uh, uh, you know, f for some of the uh, the slips, and they sure made fun of Donald Trump for his language and uh, his inability sometimes to form a complete sentence. Right. I, I think uh, because we have um, such a fragmented uh, media environment now with. Uh, uh, you know, on, on the web, through social media, uh, on, on cable, uh, talk radio as well, uh, that there are more different outlets uh, talking about the president uh, than ever before. And they're all looking for uh, different ways to, to, to differentiate themselves and, and use hot button things to, to attract audiences uh, and certainly uh Challenging the president, uh, even making fun of the president uh, is a way to do that. Uh, some presidents, I think, also give a whole lot more material uh, for uh, reporters and commentators uh, to take jibes at them. Well, FDR, excuse me, fell on his way to the podium to deliver his victory speech at the 1936 Democratic Convention. And journalists didn't report his fall, something that I doubt would happen today. So, so I think that, yeah, I think that's What led fair, to that unanimous press decision? Yeah, the, the reporters who were there, uh, they you know, generally did not report on the fact that, that Roosevelt uh, had, had a disability uh, and, you know, because of, you know, people knew that he had had polio uh, and people knew that he had used a wheelchair, but they didn't, they didn't uh, take photographs of him uh, largely in his wheelchair and, and, and didn't really talk about how his disability affected him. And at the 1936 Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, Roosevelt, as, as you said, was going up a ramp uh, up to the to the podium to make his acceptance speech. And uh, he, he took a big tumble. One of his leg braces mm. uh, collapsed from under him. And uh, the, the, the pages of his speeches went flying. Uh, his aides kind of made sort of a cordon around him so that the, the audience couldn't see it. And, you know, the reporters were there. And he, he with the help of his son and, and aides, you know, got himself back up and 
made his way to the podium and uh even though his his speech pages were no longer in order, he still managed to give a really good speech. Uh, and the reporters who were there uh, never reported that fact that that he'd taken this great tumble. Uh, and I, I think you're right. I think today that would you know be, be you know. Inc- well, we we see but, yeah. we see. Uh, Video images, right, of, right. Trump yeah, the stumbling had, or, and, and Trump with the toilet the paper, president. and Biden stumbling on uh, going up into a plane. Um, so the, there's, the, yeah, the, there's live video of, of the presidents mm-hmm. constantly now. Whenever, whenever they're out in public, so there's there's really no way that it wouldn't be be seen and talked about. Technological advances have affected how media coverage of presidents has changed over time. FDR utilized the new medium of radio in his fireside chats to circumvent the journalists who accused him of being a dictator. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, radio had been around in, in some ways since uh, for about uh, 25 or so years before Roosevelt, but it mm-hmm. had been pretty primitive uh, and uh, there hadn't really been uh, large you know, national networks until the national 1920s with, with, with CBS and NBC. And uh, Coolidge and, and, and Harding and Hoover tried radio to, to some degree, but they weren't good at it. Uh, Harding would, would, would talk into the radio like he was giving a, a speech to a large crowd uh, in the days before there was much in the way of ma- amplification. So he was sort of used to shouting uh, when he gave speeches and he would he would shout into the radio, uh, which didn't really make for a, a very warm or, or, or friendly uh, rapport with his audience. Uh, and Hoover was just generally kind of grumpy about it and uh, didn't enjoy it and uh, didn't come across well on Roosevelt uh, on radio. But, but FDR was different. Uh, he'd, he'd use radio when he was governor of New York, uh, and he had the ability to make it sound like it was a conversation uh, with his listeners, like he was like their friendly uncle who was uh, reassuring them and, and speaking frankly with them about the nation's problems and, and giving advice about, about how he would handle things. And his, his fireside chats became national events and, and, and more than half the population would, would listen to them. They'd you know, gather around in their homes or, or in taverns or other places where people met. And on, usually it was on a Sunday evening. Uh, it, was, it was destination radio. They would, they would make a point of listening. And his successor, Harry Truman, was the first president to appear on television in 1947. That changed things forever, didn't it? Although, uh, it, it, although uh, didn't President Obama have 27 million followers on Twitter, more than the circulation of the largest 75 newspapers in the country combined? So the technology keeps on changing. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, so Truman, you're right. Truman was the first to to try television. Uh, it didn't go well at first. Uh, they were he was giving a, a a talk in the Oval Office, and the the, the, the cameras went went on while a technician was still trying to uh, adjust uh, Truman's uh, tie. So the uh, <laughs> first television appearance of a president began uh, featuring the uh, the rear end of a of a cameraman. And the cameraman got out, out of the way. Uh, Truman uh, talked, but you know he's just sort of talking into his papers and, and looking very stiff and and, and uncomfortable. Uh, but starting with 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 Eisenhower. Uh, Edward R. Murrow, uh, the great uh, CBS journalist, uh, Eisenhower asked Murrow for for advice on on how to be on television, and, and Murrow advised him that uh, uh, this was before Eisenhower ran for president. That that uh, he looked really 
pretty bad on television. Uh, he was way too stiff and, and wasn't conversational. And uh, so he got a little bit of coaching and, and, and Eisenhower uh, hired some people with, with some TV experience uh, uh, from Hollywood and elsewhere. And, and he, he was coached. Uh, and so he began to hold his press conferences uh, on TV. Uh, and, and fared pretty well with them. And then JFK, of course, uh, with his sort of uh, Hollywood-style charisma, was, was quite effective uh, on television, was, was very good at joking with reporters on camera. Uh, and so, you know, from, from there, uh, the, the television productions got smoother. And then you, know, you mentioned Obama on Twitter. Uh, he and his, his staff, uh, beginning with the 2008 campaign, were... Uh, smart enough to realize the the possibilities of social media, and they had Obama on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, on YouTube, on uh, MySpace when MySpace was still a thing, uh, and. John McCain's campaign in 2008 had, had, had nothing like that. Uh, so the Obama campaign was light years ahead of McCain on social media. And Obama continued that into the White House and, and used social media to get his message out uh, and to do that without having the gatekeepers of the press uh, editing and, and commenting on, on, on those messages directly. He could, uh, Obama could reach the public uh, directly uh, through social media. And then, of course, Trump took that to a whole new level. Uh, before he was banned from Twitter, didn't Ronald Reagan play a part in allowing for greater partisan media coverage by abolishing the fairness doctrine? Uh, that's right. Uh, so the fairness doctrine, as is, is you probably know, is, was put into place after World War II. 1949. The, the All right. Uh, and uh, the idea was that, you know, the airwaves uh, are owned by the public, Uh and any any private company that's that's using the airwaves through radio and, and then television uh, had a duty to to have a, to to be a public service, uh, and part of that was if you have a politician or, or someone else or someone else arguing for a particular policy position that you needed to give uh, a fair and fair time to the opposing viewpoint. Uh, fairness doctrine was often ignored, uh, particularly uh, smaller radio stations where there, there wasn't the, the reg regulatory uh, ability to, to watch and listen to every station, uh, would sometimes abuse that. Uh, so there was certainly partisan uh, radio uh, into the 1960s. Uh, and then the, the Kennedy administration and the Lyndon Johnson administration began to realize how, how conservatives especially were using uh, radio uh, in a highly politicized way without any real attempt at the fairness doctrine. And, and so they cracked down on it. Uh, there were some court cases and, and, and court rulings saying that, yeah, you really do need to follow the fairness doctrine. Uh, so into the 1970s, into the early 1980s, the fairness doctrine was being fairly effective in terms of uh, making sure that uh, TV and radio didn't become too partisan one way or the other. Uh, now, Ronald Reagan uh, and his, his chairman of the FCC, Mark Fowler, changed that. Uh, Fowler famously said that a TV is, no, is nothing more than uh, a, a, a toaster, really, uh, in terms of, of its meaning and shouldn't be regulated uh, any more than, than a toaster would be regulated. Uh, and they uh, set about trying to abolish the fairness doctrine. Uh, Congress... Uh, passed the bill to protect it, but Reagan vetoed it. And then Fowler, uh, at the end of Reagan's presidency, uh, uh, 
he and his FCC abolished the fairness doctrine. And that really opened the door to the likes of Rush Limbaugh and, and, and others on talk radio to be uh, as partisan as they wanted to be uh, without any kind of uh, repercussion. And that, again, uh, Fox News, uh, when it launched in 1996, uh, I believe, uh, they, they very much copied that model uh, that, that Limbaugh put into place with talk radio. In a forthcoming book called This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future, President Biden is quoted as calling Fox News, quote, one of the most destructive forces in the United States, and he calls Rupert Murdoch the most dangerous man in the world. So, So, uh, (laughs) yeah, um, I think Fox News has become a very uh, destructive force, uh, especially it's, it's nighttime uh, commentators, uh, then there's less and less pretense of actually uh, trying to report the news. Uh, you know, in the early days of Fox, there would be some, uh, especially during the daytime hours, some actually pretty good reporting on, on what was going on. But uh, the people of Fox uh, figured out that they're going to make the most money by being as uh, controversial as, as as they can and and playing to their their deeply conservative audience. Uh, and if they if they stray from that, uh, stray from uh, sort of the party line uh, in terms of, of being conservative, uh, they're at risk of losing the audience that they have. So they keep doubling down on it. Uh, and you know, as, you, as you know, Tucker Carlson and, and mm. Sean Hannity, Laura Ingraham is, and others were great, great cheerleaders uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, they also raised a lot of doubts about, about COVID precautions. Uh, they regularly uh, deny uh, climate change as, as being a result of human activity. And uh, leading up to the 19, uh, or excuse me, 2020 uh, elections and into the insurrection and, and, and attempted coup, uh, they very much uh, try to uh, push uh, Trump's line that, that the election was stolen uh, and that people should fight back against it. Uh, so it was a real, I think, danger to democracy. On the other hand, MSNBC and CNN are accused of being very uh, much in the pockets of the Democrats. So it, it can go either way. Uh, it can go either way. I, but I think, there's a, I think there's a real difference there, Leonard. Uh, MSNBC and CNN did not uh, promote an insurrection uh, in, in the same way that some of the Fox people did. And they're not trying to now whitewash uh, what happened uh, and gaslight the public about the insurrection, which some of the Fox people did. Uh, so MSNBC and CNN are fully capable of, of having uh, partisanship on them, uh, but they haven't really a- a- attacked the, the roots of democracy, I think, in the way that some of the Fox people have. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. my conversation with John Marshall. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Clash, 
presidents, and the press in times of crisis. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and, and thank you very much. Weren't um, both of your parents newspaper editors? Uh, they were, in fact. I grew up in the Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona uh, area. Uh, my dad was a uh, publisher and editor of the Scottsdale Daily Progress. Uh, my mom was a, was a columnist for the newspaper, uh, wrote uh, several different columns, uh, and then later on uh, was the editor and publisher of a, of a Saturday magazine uh, that went with the newspaper. Did they ever talk about the responsibility of the press in regard to the president? And the expectations uh, we, of the president's interactions with the press? Uh, we talked all the time at the family dinner table, my parents and my, my three siblings and I, uh, about about journalism and about presidents and, and, and politics and uh, the the role of the press. So ab- absolutely. And it was a great, uh, great inspiration for me to, to become a journalist and inspiration for me to become interested in the presidency. In spite of his feud with the press, Richard Nixon received strong support from much of the media before the 1972 election. Why did they continue to support him despite his attacks on them? Yeah, Nixon is always always a, a fascinating case. Uh, he really enjoyed good press uh, through through much of his career when he when he got started uh, running for office in uh, 1946 in in, in uh, outskirts of, of Los Angeles, the uh, local newspaper was uh, editor was a was a act, active in, in local Republican pol- politics and was a big backer of Nixon when he first ran for office. Los Angeles Times, which was the dominant newspaper in that region, uh, consistently backed uh, Nixon in his early elections. Uh, once Nixon became a national figure, he got good coverage from Time Magazine. He was he was featured in Reader's Digest. Uh, and, and generally got uh, pretty favorable coverage. And, and when he ran for president, uh, a majority of newspapers uh, endorsed him uh, because a majority of newspapers were actually uh, tended to be tended to be conservative uh, in those days. But Nixon, uh, any criticism uh, for Nixon got under his skin, uh, as, as we know. He was he was rather paranoid. He was rather vengeful. Uh, so. Uh, particularly the New York Times and the Washington Post, which were uh, obviously two of the larger newspapers and, and uh, read, read frequently in Washington, uh, they, they did tend to be critical of Nixon, and that really uh, got his goat and uh, uh, made him angry. So uh, he, he would lash out at them. Uh, and he encouraged and- his staff to denounce journalists whenever possible. Right. He, uh, in, in 1969, after... Uh, he gave his big speech on Vietnam, where he had promised there was going to be big, big policy uh, breakthroughs in this speech. But it really ended up being uh, much of the same thing in terms of Vietnam. This was his, his famous silent majority speech. And uh, network commentators like Eric Severide came on afterwards and said, well, there really wasn't that much new in the speech. Uh, wasn't a great speech uh, that infuriated Nixon. Uh, and he decided to send his vice president, Spiro Agnew, out uh, to get get revenge. Uh, so Nixon uh, helped to 
write the speech. Uh, Pat Buchanan, who some of your listeners may be familiar with, was, was one of Nixon's speech writers. He, he uh, helped to write the speech as well. Uh, and they sent uh, Agnew out first to uh, Des Moines, where he uh, lashed out at the TV networks and called them a, you know unelected elite with way too much power uh, and uh, that uh, good the good silent majority of Americans, the, the, the real Americans didn't uh, uh, believe what the networks were saying and, and, hmm. and should be critical of them. Uh, you know, ironically, uh, all the networks carried Agnew's speech live, <laughs> gave him plenty of attention for his speech and let him let him say what he wanted to on, on national television. But at the same time, Agnew saying that the, that the networks were unfair to him. And then Agnew gave a speech a few weeks later uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, where he went after the, the New York Times and the Post and, and the print media. And Nixon used the IRS and the FBI to threaten journalists he disliked. Absolutely. Uh, he um, had the IRS audit uh, Mary McGrory, who was a, a longtime columnist, uh, first for the Washington Star, then for the Washington Post, a uh, liberal columnist. Uh, and uh, her tax returns were audited uh, for several years in a row because she was she made donations to a to a children's home that she supported. And they, they were auditing her to see if those uh, donations were, were legitimate and of course, any, anyone who's ever gone through a tax audit knows it's a real pain in the neck to go through. Uh, and so they went after Mary McCrory. They went after uh, great investigative reporter Robert Green, who worked for uh, Newsday on Long Island. Uh, Green had done a series on Nixon's good friend, Bibi Rebozo, and, and some sort of financial shenanigans that Rebozo was involved in. So Nixon had the IRS go after uh, Robert Green. Uh, he wanted the IRS to go after Scanlon's Monthly, which was sort of a left-wing alternative magazine that had made fun of Spiro Agnew. So uh, he, uh, Nixon's people ordered uh, one of the IRS to look into them. And then the FBI was even, it was really even sort of nastier than that. Uh, he had the FBI investigate Daniel Shore, who was a great uh, hmm. CBS newsman uh, reporter who had uh, reported critically on some Nixon education initiatives. Uh, so Nixon wanted the FBI to investigate Shore to find out what, what dirt they could about him. And when Shore actually got wind of it, uh, and Nixon's people came up with a ludicrous story that the FBI was actually checking into Shore because Nixon was considering appointing Shore uh, to his White House, which uh, if anyone knew Nixon and knew Shore knew that that, that wasn't true. Uh, but that was the cover story they used. And then, then an even darker turn, uh, they used uh, the FBI to see if they could catch uh, any journalist uh, being involved in, in, in a gay or lesbian relationship so they could use it for blackmail purposes. Didn't Nixon uh, so, promote the term media rather than the press? Why did he do that? He did. Uh, the press, you know, at, at that point generally uh, polled, you know, fairly decently in, in public opinion polls about which institutions do people trust. Uh, the media sounded, you know, more sort of amorphous, like a more uh, distant uh, institution, uh, and also uh, kind of encapsulates the, sort of a, you know, sort of this new, maybe uh, uh, somewhat, you know, frightening kind of, you know, technological change. Um, and, uh, you know, William Sapphire, who has been a speechwriter for Nixon, uh, you know, suggested they start using, uh, you know, the media as a term that maybe would sound a little bit more threatening. And we still a do. A little bit more distant. 
to the public, and and the media really has become uh, kind of the default term to be used. Now, Barack Obama limited press coverage of his presidency. What were some of the steps that he took to do that? And what, Obama what do you think you know, came into office, were? you know, promising to be you know the most transparent president ever. Uh, in, in some ways, his administration was. They put more things up on the on, on the White House website uh, than had ever been up there before. Uh, made it much easier for people to search for information. Uh, but the, at the same time, uh, Obama was very adept at avoiding the White House press corps, uh, avoiding interviews uh, with the reporters who, who were covering him. So he he went years. Uh, uh, without doing an interview, uh, for, you know, with New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, many of the other you know leading uh, places that, that that historically have covered the White House, and instead uh, Obama would go on uh, shows like The View on on TV and uh, Oprah. Uh, he would uh, went on a show called uh, Between Two Ferns, which was a you know, popular sort of uh, comedy show for uh, people in their maybe in their 20s. Uh, he went there to promote the Affordable Care Act. So friendly uh, so environments. He went, he went to friendly environments where he could be rest uh, much easier that he wasn't going to be asked the really tough questions. Now, partisan media consumption has led to severely fragmented opinions on critical issues like COVID-19, climate change, the Black Lives Matter movement, and more. Can a president and the press work together to ease tensions and divisiveness on, on critical issues? Do we, have right. we see that ever happening? Well, I think it's much going to be much harder now. That's a great question. Um, and I, don't, I think on, you know, on social media, uh, I don't think you're ever going to, get uh, any kind of uh, coherent message in terms of, of uh, information to, to, to deal with crises. Um, I, I think with the Biden administration, uh, with Jen Psaki holding regular news conferences, which, which Trump's press secretaries didn't always do. And now she's uh, going to MSNBC. So that line gets a little blurred. Yeah, but I, my my expectation is that whoever replaces her would uh, also be holding uh, regular press conferences. Uh, so I I think there's more of an effort to uh, not spread. Uh, you, know, you know, the heart of the Trump presidency was was or one of the hearts of the Trump presidency was was, was spreading conspiracy theories. Uh, and I don't think you know for whatever criticism we can give Joe Biden, and, and there's certainly plenty of it. Uh, the, the promotion of conspiracy theories about uh, COVID and, and, and elections and, and just about everything else uh, isn't there. So there can be a bit of a, of a reset with that. Uh, but I think there's, you know, I don't think we're going to move away from a fragmented media environment. So there's going to still be contentiousness going on. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is John Marshall whose latest book is Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. It is published by Potomac Books. Um, Trump repeatedly discredited the press throughout his presidency. And, and when Leslie Stahl asked him why he kept attacking the press, he said, you know why I do it? I do it to discredit you all and demean you all so that when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. And it seems to have worked, at least with a segment of our population. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, um, it was actually uh, 
Trump was borrowing a strategy from Nixon. I don't, I don't know if he was consciously borrowing it or not. Uh, but, but Nixon had uh, said something pretty similar in, in private uh, with, with his chief of staff, H.R. Uh, Haldeman. Uh, and Haldeman actually sort of came up with the strategy of using the press as a useful enemy, some uh, a large institution to, to, to be despised. Uh, and Trump took that approach uh, and, and put it on steroids and uh, really made discrediting the press um, a, a central strategy, not just in, in his uh, meetings with his aides, but, but quite publicly. Uh, and was really the first president to, to, to promote the you know, idea of, of, of violence against journalists and, and uh, that it was OK uh, to, uh, to attack journalists. Uh, so it, it, he really took it to a different level. Well, the war seems to uh, be all throughout politics right now. Kevin McCarthy's recent run-ins with the press, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and some others, uh, Matt Gates, uh, and any number of, of Democrats as well. Uh, so isn't this part of the whole process of democracy? Uh, people... Uh, uh, questioning what's going on or, uh, or defending themselves. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you suggest that when journalists become so obsessed with scandals that they try to outdo each other, report on things that are thin on facts, that becomes a problem. Yeah, I think you're right, Leonard. I think I think tension between presidents and the press uh, will be and, and should be part of democracy. That you know. The press and the presidents are playing different roles. The president, of course, is trying to push his policies, uh, push their popularity, uh, and the press, uh, if they're doing their job well, is is questioning things, challenging things, investigating things, and that's that's going to put the two of them uh, in tension. Uh, but then the problem, sometimes it goes pretty far. Glenn Beck has called President Biden a fascist. Right. Well, that's all. You've written an article uh, on that. An an extreme form of it. Uh, They they called uh, the conservative press called uh, FDR uh, like Hitler and and, and Stalin as as well. Uh, So an autocrat, an autocrat, a dictator, Mm -hmm. uh, fascist and a communist. so I think it you know it goes too far uh, if you are saying that it, that that a president uh, is uh, being like uh, being like Hitler or Stalin uh, if if they're not being like Hitler and Stalin uh, and I think that kind of uh, exaggeration uh, you know, serves to to sell more books uh, for uh, Glenn Beck and and get more people to listen to his radio story, uh, show but isn't really necessarily. Uh, uh, spreading uh, information that's 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 helpful for people because um, it's it's not based on much in reality, uh, but at, at the same time, as as, as you said, Leonard, uh, you know the press has a responsibility to report accurately, uh, and I think it's pretty well documented that, that you know sometimes the search for scandal, uh, the next Watergate, uh, can go overboard and. Uh, can rely sometimes on, on, on thin, thin evidence or evidence that's not really there. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. when the press does that, I think it tends to erode uh, the public's trust in journalism. You offer some suggestions on how to improve the relationship between the president and the press. For example, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. What would change into that? Yes, yeah, so that's a um, actually it's a bipartisan bill. Uh, 
and uh, it's got about, about uh, 70 or so uh, co-sponsors. And what it would do what, is— in, in, in the, the House or the Senate? In the House. Huh. Because the Senate Senate is almost—it's almost always split according to party along party lines, with with a few rare exceptions. Yeah, I'd have to look. um, I don't know offhand whether there's a a companion bill in the Senate. Um, I I can check that out. But uh, the Local Sustainability Act would uh, give tax breaks uh, to people. Uh, if they subscribe to a publication or if they made um, a donation uh, to a, a news outlet like uh, WBAI, uh, they would get um, additional uh, tax breaks for doing that uh, to try to uh, incentivize people to either subscribe uh, or, to, or to help fund uh, nonprofit uh, journalism. At the same time, um, advertisers would get a tax break for advertising uh, in news outlets. And news outlets that actually hire journalists uh, would would get uh, tax breaks uh, for doing that as well. You also suggest regulating social media companies and the flow of disinformation and and democracy. Yeah, if um, the social media giants uh, don't change uh, what they're doing, and we haven't seen a whole lot of. You know, they every every once in a while they make they make a big pronouncement about how they're going to change their algorithms and and uh, to, to stop the spread of of, of disinformation. Uh, and Elon Musk, we're not sure what he would do. We have no idea what what will happen there. Uh, but they're not really transparent about their algorithms. It's 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 very much in the shadow. And you know, interesting, the you know, the European Union uh, just passed a law that. Uh, the social media companies do need to be much more transparent uh, about uh, how how things are, are promoted. I mean, you know, what what kind of stories uh, get get pushed to the top of people's feeds, and and what's what kind of stories don't, and uh, how uh, sort of the the feeding of controversy uh, and misinformation, uh, the algorithms uh, tend to um, highlight those, uh, and. Uh, you know, stories that are you know, based on on the on, on news uh, don't don't go as high in, in people's feeds. You know, during the start of COVID uh, in the spring of 2020, the the, the sites uh, ten top sites spreading misinformation about COVID got something to the effect of you know, four times um, as much reach um, as the top ten sites, uh, you know, reliable sites uh, promoting information about COVID and and. As, as we know, that that that's really you know literally, you know dangerous and deadly when that when that happens. We have just a, a minute and a half or so to go, but you also suggest schools need to teach news literacy. I do. Uh, this would obviously take a while to put into place, but I think we need to think of news literacy as a, a, a fundamental skill that, that that people need to learn in the same way as they're learning uh, reading and writing and they're learning algebra and, and other skills. Uh, people need to understand uh, the difference between uh, propaganda and news. They should understand how, how advertising works. Uh, they should understand uh, ways to try to sort through uh, disinformation, uh, understand uh, the way that, that journalism operates and what, what makes something journalism and what makes something not journalism. Uh, and it, it's a basic skill that uh, I, I don't think our uh, our children uh, are necessarily growing up with. And I'm 
uh, quite confident that, that many adults uh, haven't developed that skill as well, and I think, I think we need to. I've been talking with John Marshall, whose latest book is Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis from Potomac Books, a logical follow-up to a previous book, Watergate's Legacy in the Press. He's an associate professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications. And it has been my great pleasure to have him on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonard. It's been a pleasure to be uh, on the show with you. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for helping prepare today's interview, and from my audio engineer, Richie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going, well, by calling first, 212-209-2950, or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis by John Marshall. There's a lot more in the book than we could ever get to. Really fascinating stuff. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thank you if you do that with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll make that call because WBAI relies solely on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. We hope you can join us again on Monday when Dr. John Abramson's will be for John Abramson's discussion of his book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Have a great weekend.